It may seem unusual to hear about persecution of Christians in Mexico, but southern Mexico, Chiapas area, is very anti-Christian. There's communist elements there, um, and a mixture of paganism, uh, kind of a Christo-paganism, Roman Catholic thing. And if you've never heard of the Voice of the Martyrs, that's a group founded by Richard Vermbrand, a Romanian pastor is now dead. I get their magazine. The latest issue is all about persecution in Mexico. So it's very real, and mostly in southern Mexico. But the National Presbyterian Church of Mexico is the largest Christian group in the country after the Roman Catholic Church. There are more Presbyterians in Mexico than in the United States. So, uh, and our church, we are in covenant, an official covenant with the National Presbyterian Church of Mexico to help them plant churches. And we are educating, every year we educate fully, 12 Mexican church pastors and or church planters. We're paying for their education. They're going back to Mexico. Half of them are studying in Mexico, half in the US. They all have to go back and serve in Mexico. So we're making a great impact and we're looking for other ways to partner with the National Presbyterian Church of Mexico to upgrade their theological seminaries and uh, other things. So exciting things happening. Well, when I was, I think when I was a senior at Trinity University, they opened the Bombay Bicycle Club. Some of you have been there. Now, let me just ask you a question. Does that thing have anything to do with bicycles? No. No. If you, you, you can eat there, drink. There's nothing to do with bicycles. And the reason I bring that up is because we're focusing in on discipleship and making disciples. Jesus says his last words before he ascended was the Great Commission. Go into all the world and not make converts or have a nice, friendly neighborhood church, but to make disciples. And, uh, and yet a lot of Christians just don't get it. They want to just go to church, be a nice, friendly neighborhood church where I just come and go, get my needs met, blah, blah, blah. Um, and other people are, I've found, put off by the Great Commission because they think that it means, oh, if I'm a faithful Christian, I've got to quit my job and go put a pith helmet on and go overseas with a machete and find some unreached tribe. I want to give you, uh, there is a value in studying the biblical languages. When I went to seminary, it was required. I had to take uh, the equivalent of uh, two years of college Greek and two years of college Hebrew. I and My homilex professor, Welford Hobby, hammered home. He said, never get in the pulpit if you haven't done a full translation of the Greek or the Hebrew. I have never not done that. I, and I'm not proficient in either language. I have a, a pedantic working relationship. But I've learned a lot of things. Some have been helpful, some not that helpful in putting together sermons. But I want to key you in on two things that might open up a whole way of looking at disciple making for you. The Great Commission. Um, let me read it in the ESV. Here's Jesus speaking. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, the actual Greek verb, uh, go there, is a, more literally translated 
as you are going. And when I saw that and I began to think about that, I think Jesus is saying, you know, this has nothing to do with going to be a missionary. It means as you are going through your day, as you are going to the store, to your office, as you are going to the beach, as you are going to mow your backyard, you just have your discipling radar on. Um, a conversation with a neighbor across the fence may be making a disciple that you don't know about yet. And so it's as you're going through your normal life, you're looking for opportunities to tell people about Christ when it's appropriate. I don't think you have to ram it down anybody's throat. Before I get on a plane, when I get on a plane, I want to read my book. I don't want to talk to the person next to me. But I always pray, Lord, if you want me to talk to somebody, sick them after me. And occasionally it happens. Usually they'll, I see them looking at what the book is. Usually it's a Christian book of some sort. And I'm like, <laughs> what's that you're reading? Oh, nothing. Uh, is that about God or something? Yeah. Could you talk to me? Okay, here we go. Thanks, Lord. Um, but as you're going, be open to the Holy Spirit, introducing you to somebody else and allowing you to introduce Christ to somebody else. So um, as you are going. And then I think it was the first lesson Chris was talking about Bonhoeffer's cost of discipleship was based around the Beatitudes, you know, blessed, blessed, blessed. And if you're like me, the Beatitudes never made any sense till I preached on them and did the, the, the Greek. And because um, you remember that good news Bible? It was happy. They replaced blessed with happy. Happy are you when you're poor and suffering and persecuted and beat up. That doesn't make any sense. And what does it mean to be blessed or blessed? Well, I did a word study on it. And if you, I went from the Greek back to the Hebrew, back to the Aramaic. And in the literal meaning of the word in Aramaic, it's a phrase actually, to toss a pebble. Be blessed is to toss a pebble. What the heck does that mean? It means this. When you're making a journey through the Judean hills in the pitch black of night, and there were precipices you could fall off, you would pick up a pebble, toss it in front of you, and if you could hear it hit, you knew you could at least put your foot there, you had solid ground. Toss a pebble. That, got, that morphed in the Hebrew to the phrase, on the path. And then in Greek, it morphed into meaning, on the right road. Now stick that into the Beatitudes. Blessed, on the right road are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. On the right road are you, blah, blah, blah. It, it makes sense of all of that. To be blessed is not to be that God's given me a great house and a car and blah, blah, blah. blah. Uh, it's mean I'm on the right road. I'm on the right road. Um, that's the goal of being a disciple, to be on the right road. You know, occasionally I run into people say, you know, I don't believe Jesus is God, but he's a great man. And I try to live by the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? 
good luck. I always ask them, oh, have you read it? Well, well I like that Beatitudes. Come on. Come on. Um, you can't live by the Sermon on the Mount. You can't do it. Just like you can't keep the Ten Commandments. The purpose of both those things, the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, is to drive you and me nuts. To drive us, seriously, to drive us to a point where we finally say, I give up, I can't do it, I need help. Then God goes, okay, now you got it. I need you, Lord. You know, AA was founded by two drunk Presbyterian elders, and they based it on the gospel of grace. And the first step is, I got a problem, I can't fix it, I need, they call it a higher power now. Originally, they were explicitly, you need Jesus Christ. And some AA groups are still explicitly Christian. And that's the starting point of being a disciple, is I can't do this, I need help, I'm an abject sinner in need of a savior. So I just thought that would be interesting as we talk about discipleship. Remember, it happens as you're going through your normal life, not something special you do over here, and then go back to your normal life. And being a disciple is to be blessed, you're on the right road. And this is an historic moment. I have never, ever done a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> this old dog has learned a new trick, so just watch this. Oh, and by the way, I want to say, so when Chris entitled the chapter four of his book, The Way of a Christ Follower, you could translate that, The Right Road. Jesus said, I am the right road. That's, I am the way, the truth, and life. He said, I am the right road. Same Greek word. And uh, so, now watch this. Okay. And the first point that Chris wants us to know about this, this, this way of discipleship is that it's by invitation only. Uh, you're not a disciple by accident. And you can't be a disciple by saying, I'm going to be a disciple. No, you have to be invited. And he gives us an example of how Jesus invites um, Simon, Peter, Andrew uh, to come follow me. And so really, being a disciple is all about call. Um, I, I mentor about three young pastors and it's amazing how many of them have trouble articulating a sense of call. Um, I would have never lasted at my church in Dallas. I had five horrific first five years there out of 14. I would have not stayed there if I did not feel called to be. That's the only thing I would hold on to. I'm called to be here. I can't leave. I wanted to leave. And... Um, Call is all about the prevenient grace. The Christian life is all about the prevenient grace of God. That means God always makes the first move. You know, we love God. Why? Because he already loves us. And so he's the one that makes the invitation. He chooses us before we ever choose him. And if you want to get really hardcore reformed about this, which I do, just look at Ephesians 1 verse 4 fact is, you were chosen before the foundation of the world, before God ever spun the first atom of the universe off his fingertips. 
He already knew who you were. He already decided you were going to be his and chose you. So that call was coming. It hits people at different times in their lives, different ages. I first heard the call when I was 10, and I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade. It was the real deal. Um, some people, it's a deathbed thing. Other people say, I just don't know a time when Jesus wasn't real to me. You know, you got in the New Testament, you got Paul and Timothy who were sort of sidekicks, and they're good buddies, and they come to Christ. They become disciples in totally different ways. What happens? How does Paul become a disciple? The road to Damascus. He's going on the totally wrong road, the Antichrist road, and boy, what an invitation he got. He gets struck down by Christ himself, and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And he does a 180 and gets on the right road and does that to the end of his life. And so Paul has a very, you know, we talk about a Damascus Road experience. Some people have those kind of experiences coming to Christ. Most Christians do not. They've done studies, and it shows that 80-some percent of Christians become Christians usually by sitting in a pew in a congregation, hearing the gospel faithfully preached, and the Holy Spirit does a work on them. So most Christians are like Timothy, where Timothy, Paul says, grew up at the knee of his mother and grandmother, and probably Timothy would say, I can't remember a time in my life where Jesus wasn't as real as the wallpaper, and I can't exactly remember the day I gave my life to Christ, but I know I have, and that's probably most of you all here, and, but it's all about invitation. Either way, it's the Holy Spirit inviting you, drawing you onto the right road. Now, um, the next thing we need to realize about being a disciple, it's not just about intellectual assent to certain doctrines. Doctrines are important. Um, in eco, we have what we call our essential tenets. We believe to be an officer of the church, you must believe these, and every other member is encouraged to believe them too. To be a member of a, or a covenant partner, you only have to affirm Jesus as Lord. But um, I, I'm not playing down doctrine. And you've heard me say this before. Who are the most orthodox, theologically orthodox beings in the universe? Have you ever thought about it? The book of James, chapter 2, verse 19, tells us. It's, it, James says, you believe God, he's writing to the, the Hebrew Christians, early Christians, he says, you believe God is one. That's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's kind of the Jewish Apostles' Creed. You believe the Lord, our, your God is one. And he says, big deal. Even the demons believe. Even the demons believe. Okay, that raises the question. The, de the, de the demons don't sit around and argue, was Jesus really born of a virgin? <laughs> they know the truth. They don't debate among themselves, did Jesus bodily rise from the dead or was it a spiritual thing? Or No, they witness firsthand the bodily resurrection of Christ. They don't sit around and wonder, is Jesus really fully God and fully man? They know. So what's the difference between a demon and Ron Skates? Some of you might say, not a whole lot. And there are times when you're correct. But 
what's the difference between a demon who's totally theologically orthodox and us? Are demons blessed? No, they're not on the right road. They are not following Christ. And the point Chris is trying to get across in his book is that it's more than intellectual assent. It's actually getting on the road and following Christ. When Jesus says to uh, Peter and Andrew, come follow me, they don't say, well, give us a few books to read. We'll study up on you. And, um, and then if it seems to make sense, uh, we'll see in a couple of weeks. No, they get up and go. They have no theological acumen. They don't really know what they're doing, except Christ is such authority that when he speaks, they're drawn toward him. And they start, you know, you can argue that they never really figure out who Jesus is till after the resurrection. Even then, you know, it says right before the Great Commission, it says they met him on a hill outside of Galilee and they bowed in worship, but some doubted. I was saying to the men's Thursday morning Bible study that um, there are texts in Scripture that I call veracity texts, you know, that uh, prove the authenticity, the integrity, the veracity of the Bible. That's one of them. Just imagine, if you were the apostles and you got together and said, well, we know Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, but we want to put together this religion, maybe we can make some money, and blah, 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 blah. So they collude. Well, the Gospels, all of them are veracity texts because the, the apostles look like the Keystone Cops throughout the Gospels. They're bumping into each other. They don't know where they're going, they're, who Jesus is. They're shooting their mouths off when they shouldn't. They look like a bunch of bumbling fools. Now, if this is all made up, they're not going to make themselves look good. And here it says they gathered and some doubted. The Bible tells what really happened. It's authentic. Uh, so you can trust. You can put your full weight down on, on Scripture. But it's not all about intellectual assent. Being a disciple is chiefly about obedience. Eugene Peterson, it's a great Presbyterian pastor, he wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's another way of saying being obedient to Christ on the right road and staying on the right road your whole life. And that's not easy. I dare you to do a little study. Just take one of the Gospels and track where Jesus is going. He says, come follow me. And then He's always moving toward the least, the last, and the lost, and suffering and brokenness. Hey, doesn't that sound exciting? That's where he's going. And when he says, take up your cross, there's only one thing crosses were invented for. Not to make James Avery money, like my little Celtic cross here and my James Avery ring. They were to kill people with the most excruciating, torturous death you could undergo. So if you're a disciple and you get on the right road, don't be surprised if you're going to suffer because of following Christ. That's a part of the deal. And we need to tell new Christians that at the beginning. Uh, not let them find out... Uh, on their own. So I preached a sermon one time entitled The Search for the Balsa Wood Cross. And that's really autobiographical of me. I'm always looking for well, what's the lightest cross here? 
And by the way, uh, don't ever say to somebody, well, I was just diagnosed with hoochie-coochie disease. That's my cross to bear. No, it's not. A cross is something you voluntarily pick up and you voluntarily can lay it down at any time. The hoochie-coochie disease, that's a trial. And that may or may not have anything to do with your decision to follow Christ. But a cross is something you say, okay, Lord, I hear your call. I'm going to go there even though I don't want to and it looks pretty bad. Um, Gilberto, the pastor in Mexico, he was told, shut up. Do not preach about Jesus. And he went ahead and did it. He had a decision. He could, there's the cross, preach about Jesus. He could not pick it up probably go on with his life and everything would be fine. But he picked it up, did it, and he paid a price. And fortunately, he and his family are out of prison now, but they're still on the radar down there. So all Christians in southern Mexico need our, our prayers. Um, but they, they're walking the, the right road. And I want to go back to this Bombay Bicycle Club thing again to help drive home the point of what it means to be a disciple. There are bicycle clubs. I used to be a, a biker, not a... In Dallas, I loved riding my bike around White Rock Lake. I never joined a club, but they have them. Let's just say you have a great love for bicycles, so you join a club, you go out and buy a Trek, $2,900, $800, and you go to the meetings, and you read about bicycles and everything else. But you never go on a ride. You, you can do that, you know. That's the way the church is for a lot of people. They give intellectual assent to, yeah, I like bicycles. And I read about bicycles. And I hang out with people who ride and who love bicycles. But I never ride my bike. Then why are you in the bicycle club? So church is not just about going to worship in a Sunday school class and fellowship and all that. It's about being a disciple and making other disciples. Again, the Great Commission is not just find your way onto the right road and then sit back and cruise till eternity. It's make disciples. Well, how do you do that? It's relationships. And I think Chris gets more into that later on. Uh, so I'm not going to go down that road right now. Um, but discipleship <clears throat> is both a lifelong and an eternal journey. You know, don't get the idea that if I just study enough and have a deep enough relationship with Christ, one day I will arrive. Here's the good and bad news about discipleship. You never arrive, ever. I don't think we'll ever arrive once we're in eternity. I think Jesus is absolutely inexhaustible in terms of what we can learn about. I think we're going to spend eternity learning something new about Christ and who he is and what he's done and what his love for us is all about. I don't think we'll ever exhaust that. That's my theory. I can't prove it. But certainly in this life, the 110-year-old committed Christian still needs to be discipled. There's something... I need to be, so pastors need to be discipled. 
wherever I've been a pastor, I've been in a discipleship group with other pastors meeting weekly, and we would disciple each other because those guys could only understand what I was going through. Nobody else could, and I couldn't. I could understand what they're going through. And, and if I didn't do that, I would have never survived in ministry. And when you see pastors fall, there's always one thing in common. They're pretty much alone. They're out there on their own. They're successful, and that can be a curse. It makes you think, I really don't need anybody else. I'm flying high. People might drag me down, hold me back. So that's the common thing of pastors that fall. They're not connected in a covenant group with other pastors. Uh, but that's the same for individual Christians, too. If you're not in a small group, a discipling group, and it may not call itself a discipling group, there's really nothing the church does that isn't discipling. You're being discipled right now. And if I broke you up into small groups and you had a discussion, you're discipling each other, whether you are intently or intentionally trying to do that. When you go to worship, you're being discipled in there by the hymns, prayers, sermon. When you go to a fellowship group, just talking with other Christians, you're either hopefully being built up, encouraged, all of this. So it's discipleship in one sense is a very narrow thing where you can zero in and say, I'd like for you and me to disciple each other. But it also can be a very broad thing that almost anything the church is doing, you and I are being discipled, sometimes by osmosis. We don't even know it. Um, Chris says, um, oh, let's, okay, that's enough on that. Follow me. His next slide says, we're no different. And the disciples. He calls them to join him, follow him, and we may not understand at the beginning what's going on. Um, and then he ends by saying, Jesus does not want admirers. Jesus wants followers. Jesus has a lot of admirers out there. He's the greatest person ever lived. And I live by the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> yeah. um, he wants followers. Um, what does that mean exactly? There's a great little book. You can go to a Christian bookstore and get it. It probably costs you $1.50. It's not really a book. It's a pamphlet. It's a classic written by a great Presbyterian pastor who's now deceased, Bob Munger, who pastored First Pres, Berkeley, California for years. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. And if, you know, we're saved by grace, but if you arrive at the pearly gates, and Peter says, have you read My Heart, Christ's Home? You say, no. Well, we, gotta, we do have a little purgatory here for you. Now, really, every Christian should read this little pamphlet. The thesis is simple. He likens life to being like a, a house. And your goal as a Christian is to, to invite Christ, a continuous, continuum of inviting Christ into different rooms of your house. If you're like me, I have no problem inviting Christ into the living room with the plastic covers on the sofas. Now, Anne doesn't put those on the sofa. But, uh, or into the kitchen. That's fine. But what are those rooms in your house that you might... I've got to clean up that room first. Uh, maybe you don't want him down in the basement. Who knows what's in the basement? What... 
So the goal of being a disciple is to more and more get Christ, give him permission to go in every room of your house. Then it ends by saying the final thing is you actually turn the deed of the house over to Christ. You're really hit. You belong to him. This house is no longer yours. It's a kingdom house. It's a great little book. You can read it in 20 minutes, but it'll, hopefully that'll be helpful to you. So it's really, being a disciple is more and more bringing the totality of your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. As you walk this, that you're on the right road when you're doing it. If only one-tenth of your life is under the lordship of Jesus Christ, you're still on the right road. The right road means you're just trying more and more to bring more of your life under his lordship. But Satan's at work. Satan's telling you and me all the time, hey, you have a spiritual life, then you have your real life over here. Bring your spiritual life under the lordship of Christ, but he doesn't really care about your job or how you treat your kids or blah, 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 how you spend your recreational time. That's not spiritual. Yeah, it is. Jesus is just as concerned with what you and I are doing at 4 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon as he is with what we're doing right now. There's, there's no bifurcation of spiritual and secular in the Bible. That's a fabrication. So being a disciple is to get those categories out of your life and see your total life under the lordship of Christ. True story. Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles back in the 50s. Um, the head, the mafia kingpin in L.A., Mickey Cohen, goes to one, hears all about it, goes to it, He's moved by what Billy Graham says. Goes forward to receive Christ. Now, I don't know if you know how the Billy Graham organization works. When he came to Dallas in 2002, I was on the executive committee. And uh, so I was behind the scenes. What happens if you go forward? And this happened to me when I was 10. A counselor met me. We went through a little thing about the gospel. He wanted to be sure I understood and I was really doing this for the right reasons and under and then your name is given to a pastor the Graham organization recruits pastors in the area who are willing to receive names of people who live near their church then follow up in Dallas I made calls on people uh, inviting them to come to, to my church or other churches in that area that we knew were good and so imagine you're the pastor at that Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles and you get your little maybe three or four cards and you're going okay Mickey Cohen um, bless, I don't know who that guy was bless his heart he went and made an appointment with Mickey Cohen the mafia kingpin of LA and he's scared to death and he goes in there and says well Mickey I know this is a big step for you and it's a great sacrifice for you and Mickey Cohen goes, what do you mean? I just accepted Christ. It was easy. Goes, no, no, no. I mean, you're you know, going to have to give up the drug trafficking and the prostitution and gambling stuff. And Mickey Cohen goes, why? And the pastor goes, well, you, you can't be on the right road and do those things. And Mickey Cohen said, well, wait a minute. I went to this crusade and a an actor got up and said, I'm now a Christian actor. 
And a sports figure got up and said, I'm now a Christian football player. Can't I be a Christian gangster? I mean, it sounds stupid to us, but he didn't get it. Uh, he thought he could compartmentalize his life and just, I'll have my acceptance of Christ over here, and then just go. Now, we laugh at that. I'm Mickey Cohen. I'm Mickey Cohen, to be honest with you all. I, I've accepted you, Lord. I'm sure you don't mind if I just step out here for, and go off the road a little bit. I, I won't be going long. Just maybe three feet off the path. I do it all the time. Every time you and I sin, we do it. You know, you can be on the right road and sin. Doesn't mean you necessarily you have to even get off the right road. You, you, actually, you never, once you're Christ, you're never off the road. But if Christ is calling you to go, here's the road, and you're walking this way, what happens when you and I sin? What happens to this direction? Okay. All of a sudden, you're going this way. You can still be on the right road and be a sinner. And then that great term we all love, repent. Repent simply means turn around. Turn around. So if your life is my, like mine, not my life's a revolving door. Um, you know, <laughs> sin, repent, sin, repent. But that's a part of being on the right road, keeping short accounts with God. You're never going to be sinless. It doesn't, um, being a sinner, once you've accepted Christ, doesn't get you off the road so you never get back on. It's simply a matter of turning around and heading back in the right direction on the right road. That's what a disciple is. Metanoia is the word that um, Chris wants to hammer home on that. Conversion in Greek is turning around, reorienting our life around God and Christ. And so that's a continual product. We're having to reorient all the time. It's never a one-time deal because we remain, in the words of Luther in the Latin, uh, justus, uh, et, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified and sinners at the same time. In other words, when I sin, I don't lose my salvation. Christ's robe of righteousness is still around. I'm still justified in God's eyes because of Christ's sacrifice. But I'm still a sinner. And that war goes on till the day you and I die, and then we go into glory. Now, there are some sects, Christian sects, that believe you and I can be sinless in this life. If you know anybody that belongs to the Nazarene church, they actually believe I had a American guy in Indonesia who grew up in the Nazarene church. He's come out of that and realized. And uh, he said, we were told we could be sinless. There are some Methodists that believe, John Wesley believed this. Uh, Wesley was a great guy, but he was off the rails on this. He actually believed you could achieve a, a um, perfection in this life. Folks, if anybody ever tells you that, I had a woman come through the line one time when I was a senior pastor and shook my hand and said, I'm a visitor from, oh, I've come from the such and such a Nazarene church. And I joked with her. I said, well, I guess you didn't pray our prayer of confession. And she said, I didn't because I don't need to. 
I thought, this woman really believes she's sinless. And I decided not to say anything past that. I'm just glad you're here. And what you just said is a big sin, but no, I didn't say it. Okay. Uh, yeah, this thing's a journey. It's not, we never totally arrive till we go into glory. Um, it's called to follow Jesus on this lifelong journey. And we don't change all at once. So I like to say your Christian life ought to resemble the stock market. And, and don't read too much into that. But if you graph the stock market, let's just say here's when it began. I don't know when it began, 19th century, early 20th century. But it goes like this. And sometimes it goes, but from the time it began till now, today, it's, it's up here. But there are dips. That's the way your Christian life should look like. There are going to be times when you have a down time. Maybe you fall into some kind of grievous sin that gets a hold of you for a while. But over a period of time, your life, the graph ought to be going up. If it's not, you may not be on the right road. You may want to really look at what kind of relationship with Christ do I have. So, um, and this is the fancy theological word for this is sanctification. We, justification is a one-time deal. That's when the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart. God chooses you, regenerates your heart, gifts you with saving faith in Christ, and Christ's robe of righteousness, not anything you do then or ever, uh, makes you saved. It's totally Christ. You're justified. And nothing can derail that train. Nothing. I mean, Jesus says, I never lose one of my sheep. Uh, he says, I have you in my hand, and nothing can snatch you from my hand. So that's saying, once saved, always saved. That's what we believe as Presbyterian-type Christians. You can stray from that and do a prodigal journey, but ultimately the Holy Spirit's going to draw you back onto the right road or turn you around, and you can't lose your salvation. Justified once. But sanctification is a cooperative act between you and me and the Holy Spirit where we try to battle our sin and say, Holy Spirit, help me with this. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I've, I've talked to drug addicts, alcoholics, who've said, you know, I couldn't beat this on my own. But the Holy Spirit really, uh, I was friends with a guy, I guess, 40 years ago in San Antonio named Freddie Garcia. And he founded what was called Victory Outreach. And the first time I met him, um, he had a short sleeve shirt on. And I thought, gosh, he's been in a knife fight. There was a scar all the way down like this. And I said, Freddie... Somebody really did a job on you with a knife. He said, oh, no, no, no. That's 37 years of tracks. He was a heroin addict. And Freddie Garcia, I said, well, how did you get out of that? He said, nobody wants to be a heroin addict, but you get hooked. And so he said, one night I OD'd, and he was literally laying in a gutter on the west side of San Antonio. And he said, I came to... And there was Christ speaking to me and said, Freddie, you don't want to live like this anymore, do you? And he said, I said, no. And Jesus said, then get up and follow me. And he said, I got up. And he said, Ron, if you know anything about heroin addiction, he says, you don't walk away cold turkey from heroin. You go through, the, 
it's usually about a three-week process. Of, you're in agony. I mean, you're going, they call it the DTs, and, and you're throwing up and all that. He said, Ron, I stepped away from heroin that day. I never had a symptom of anything. I just followed Christ. And, now, God doesn't do that with every alcoholic and every smoker and every, you know, whatever addiction is out there. But he does with some. Why he did it with Freddie Garcia? I don't know. Just telling you what he told me. But Freddie couldn't do that on his own. He didn't say, I just have willpower and I'm not going to take heroin anymore. And I cured myself. No, it was the Holy Spirit did a miraculous thing. And sanctification, the Holy Spirit wants to cooperate with you and me in dealing, in making us more like Jesus. But if you're like me, I usually get to a point where I think this is fine, where I'm with Jesus right now. I think He's probably really pleased. Let's just stay right here. And Dad, Gummit, God's always saying, no. Further, further. So we're on this journey. It's, but I want to stop. You know, there's, there's pioneers and there's settlers. There are people that moved in the westward movement, my family, Virginia, Tennessee to Texas. And I always wondered, for instance, why did people get to Amarillo and go, hey, let's stop here. <laughs> they were settlers. They were tired of the journey. They wanted to stop. Let's found a town here. Um, I joke, but I'm, I'll be in Amarillo two times next month doing a retreat for First Pres and then preaching on Reformation Sunday at First Pres there. I love Amarillo. But I always wondered, why did they stop here? <laughs> but you know, some of us are wired to be settlers. We the journey's okay for a while, but let's just settle down and take root. And, and the, the, the hard thing about being a Christian is God doesn't know, want no settlers. He wants pioneers. Push on. There's always something for you to do. I remember hearing Dick Halverson, pastor of Fourth Prez in my hometown, Bethesda, Maryland, he talked about visiting a lady in the hospital, and she was a committed Christian. She said, Dr. Halverson, I just feel so bad that I'm bedridden now, and I can't do anything for Christ anymore. And he said, I always carried a marble in my pocket. And he said, I pulled out the marble, and I said, ma'am, this is the world. And from that hospital bed, you can impact any part of the world through prayer. You have a ministry. And that changed her whole perspective on life so any of us can pray if that's all we can do if that's all we can do uh, when God's people pray God's hand moves um, so this is a, a continual thing um, grace it's grace that molds you and me not us into new people Now, Chris gives us an example of Abraham. It's kind of a classic example. Here's Abraham. He's well off, great family, prosperous, enjoying life. And God says, leave. Pack up your stuff and go. Where? Just go. Now, if I was Abraham, I'd go, give me five reasons. <laughs> or what about, I can't. But Abraham now, maybe Abraham did that. It just didn't get recorded in Scripture. I don't know. But no, I think Abraham believed God. He trusted God. 
And he obeys and he, he leaves. And his journey never ends. He spent the rest of his life on this journey of faith. He, did, he wasn't perfect. If you read the Abraham story, you see that. Um, but it was through Abraham that God promised to bless all the nations. With the coming of the Messiah and everything else. So we're thankful that Abraham... Uh, and, you know, I, I, one of the parts of the Bible that I just hate and love is Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. I mean, if you have a child, I mean, if God said to me, Ron, take your son Andrew, go out and build an altar and kill him. I mean, I'd like to say, well, yeah, I'd I'd obey and do it. And every time I read through the Bible every year and I get to that thing and I I try to get inside Abraham's head, think, what was he thinking? but he had such a trust. And here's Isaac. Well, Dad, here's the fire. Here's the wood. Where's the sacrificial lamb? What does Abraham say? Uh, God will provide. And he does. But, okay, I could probably be Abraham up to that point. But then when he's got the knife and the angel stops him at the last minute, to me, that story seems bordering, if not over the line, on cruel. But then I realized, wait a minute. God doesn't ask Abraham to do anything that God wasn't going to do. God takes his son and doesn't stay the angel's dagger. That's the crucifixion. That's something to remember when you and I are going through suffering. God's not out there saying, oh, that's too bad. He always enters into our suffering with us. And he's always gone through greater suffering than whatever we can go through. Um, I still don't like this. I hate it, but I love it because there is proof that God is willing to do what he doesn't ask any of us to do or make us do. That's how deep God's love goes. Um, Final word. We're no different than Abraham. We're on a journey of faith. Along that journey, we receive blessings, and we're responsible to share them. That's a quote from from Chris. Um, So Christian discipleship, to sum it all up, is learning to obey the voice, the call of God. And when you do, when you and I do that, we're on the right road. Um, this is my theory about Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, actually the four books, The Hobbit. And, um, here's, here's what I think that series is really all about. And I'm not a literary scholar, but this came to me one day. I really think it's about, uh, the message is that you and I can make any journey if we have the right companion. Think about it. The hobbits are kind of defenseless. They're like guinea pigs. You know? What can a guinea pig do to defend itself? The hobbits are not very smart. They're not strong, blah, blah, blah. But they always hook up with the right companion on the journey. It's the companion that helps them make the journey to the end. 
And I think that's Tolkien's way of encouraging us that there's not any journey on life that we can't make if we have the right companion, but with a capital C. That companion is Christ. Remember the Great Commission to make disciples ends with, I think, Jesus' greatest promise. When he says, remember, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. So we're never alone on this road. It's not a solo journey. Um, there's always the companion there. Remember that Hallmark thing years ago about the footprints in the sand? You know, there's two sets of footprints, and there's only one set. I thought that was kind of schmaltzy. I used to kind of make fun of that until my daughter died. And then uh, that was my life. You know, there was that single set of footprints. Christ carried me and Anne through that time. And that's true. We're never alone on the journey. So he never asks us to go anywhere that he's not with us. And his Holy Spirit will give you and me the courage and the gifts to do whatever it is we're called to do. But everybody's journey is different. So there's not a, like a cookie cutter journey. So don't ever judge somebody over here that maybe they don't look like their Christian life is as exciting as yours. There may be a whole lot more going on there. Um, I, just to confess, I remember visiting the proverbial little old lady in the next hospital, this is 40 years ago, who, yeah, she was here at the church all the time, but I thought she was a nominal Christian because she. Ne I never heard her talk about her faith. She just seemed like just a nominal Christian. That, that was back in the days before they threw you out of the hospital, the insurance companies took over, you know. So she was there for a long time. So I was visiting her every day for about a week. By the last day, I walked out of that room wondering if I was a Christian because she started opening up to me. And her generation didn't talk, you know, about the faith all the time like I wanted her to. But once she got comfortable with me, I realized this woman's faith was deep and wide. And uh, so don't ever <laughs> judge somebody else on their journey. Just keep worrying about where, whether you're on the right road, where you are on the right road. But always remember, bottom line, you're not alone. You've got the companion, and you can make the journey by grace. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for calling us. None of us deserve it, and uh, none of us can earn it, and that's all of grace. So we thank you that you are a God who loves us far more than we believe, even in our wildest dreams. Please help all of us to get on the right road if we're not, to stay on the right road, to turn around when we need to, and not listen to other voices, especially Satan's voice, who would want us to not believe that we can make the journey. And so we thank you for your promise that you'll be with us always. We cling to that promise, Lord. Better yet, you cling to us. And that's our greatest hope. In Christ's name, amen.